So I think, you know, the fact that it was associated with Nixon and it was very much so associated with predominantly white physicians in lab coats, you know, out of institutions, you know, very few in the beginning were community based methadone programs. So out of these sort of ivory tower hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, giving out this medication. And there are lots of folks who have a stake in the methadone clinic system financially. You know, it you can bill for daily visits, right? That's a lot more lucrative than giving people take-homes. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. This is your co-host, Zach Siegel, and I'm introducing today's very exciting episode on the history of methadone and America's bizarre and Kafkaesque clinic system. Today, we'll be hearing from a young doctor who wrote a fabulous medical and scientific history of methadone, drawing on the work of scholars like Helena Hansen and Samuel K. Roberts. It's been a minute since I've done one of these introductions and have been on the pod. I got really bogged down with a bad cold and have basically been behind on all my work. So if I owe you an email and you're listening to this, sorry. But I'm very glad to be back in podcast mode. And thankfully, my friend and co-host Troy Farah has been holding down the fort while also writing amazing work for Salon.com. You should go check out his reporting over there right now. Just a few housekeeping items before we roll this interview. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Give us a review. It helps people find us. If you're in the giving mood this year, please support us on Patreon.com slash Narcotica. We have tons of episodes in the pipeline, and we appreciate all of our generous supporters for tossing us some dough, and especially for helping us pay our producer and editor, Aaron Ferguson. He does incredible work both for the pod and in his everyday life. All right, I think that about does it. Time to take a deep dive into the upside-down world of methadone in America. So today on the show, we have a very special guest, Zoe Adams. Zoe, tell us where you're coming from. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be on the show. Um yeah, so I'm originally from New York City. Um, I'm in my first year of residency at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Um, I've always been sort of like a outsider in the field of medicine. I um, went to like a performing arts high school. I studied classics in undergrad. I was always in some ways more interested in like the historical and social context of medicine. Um and I ended up at Yale for medical school and took some time to get a master's in the history of medicine, um, where I became not only very clinically interested in addiction medicine, but very, very taken with the history of addiction treatment in the U.S., specifically mm-hmm. uh, methadone. 
Cool. Um, and that's the that's the topic of today's show, methadone. Yeah. It's something we've talked a lot about. And joining us for this conversation, a history of methadone, pretty much. We've got Troy Farah coming from California. What's up, Troy? Hey, how's it going? It's uh, nice and sunny today. And Chris Maraf from Philly. Hey, y'all. Cool, cool. So, yeah, this is going to be a deep dive into methadone and why it is regulated the way it is, why it's so tightly controlled the way it is, and how it came to have its kind of, how it became sort of a cultural and political symbol in addition to a super effective form of medicine. So Zoe, you wrote your thesis on this drug and its history. And I think before we dive into some of the really complex historical twists and turns uh, over the last several decades with this drug, let's first just talk, what is methadone? Like, how did this drug come into being? Yeah, so I'll just start with just a touch of pharmacology and then go into a bit of the history of how it came to be. But so methadone hydrochloride is its full name. So it's a synthetic full opioid agonist, meaning it binds the opioid receptor like 100% versus buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, meaning it binds the receptor only a little bit. So full opioid agonist, synthetic. Um, It was developed in Germany in the early 1940s as an alternative drug to morphine. Um, And after Germany surrendered to the allies in 1945, which marked the end of World War II, uh, U.S. intelligence officials came across a description of a synthetic opiate called dolefine. Named after Adolf Hitler, is that right? Adolf? Dolphin. No, 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 no. That's apocryphal. I, I don't think is that's it, true. Is that, is that a myth? Yeah. I think that is a myth. Uh, Zach, you, yeah, that dolophine means dolo yeah. is pain and fiend means end. So, like, a med- an analgesic, a medicine yeah. to end pain. And, you know, they basically, US, US intelligence officials came across this. They were leafing through, a, you know, now obsolete German pharmaceutical company's records. And in 1947, the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly, which we've heard of maybe, um, made methadone available in the U.S. And it was used for a variety of ailments, most often analgesia or or, or pain relief. Um, It was also a cough suppressant. So lots of different ways methadone was used. So when methadone came on the market in the U.S., like, was it with a lot of fanfare? Was there... Any pushback? Like, what was the reaction to this coming onto the market? This Nazi drug. (laughs) Yes. Which is, which is funny. This is a little short aside. I was sitting around a Seder. I was at a Seder last year and um, someone who was in recovery and, and used to use heroin was around the table and he, he hated methadone and called it a Nazi drug. Uh, and that and that Adolf Hitler was behind it and all this stuff. And I just sort of politely nodded my head and felt it was not appropriate to. Uh, you, you, didn't, that moment. you didn't bust out your thesis and read it word I, for word at, I the, didn't. at the Seder. I didn't. 
um, which took a lot of restraint and I'm, I'm proud of myself for that. But anyway, um, so in the forties, you know, I don't really know the answer to that. I don't think it was really, um, regarded with much fanfare. I think it was just like another form of morphine. People were like, okay, you know, yeah. use treat pain, another way to treat pain. It's long acting. I don't think it really made waves until the mid early mid sixties. Yeah, something tells me back in the 40s that drugs were not marketed the way that they are now, and that this is like pre-Arthur Sackler's Valium campaign, which like kind of revolutionized the way that drugs are marketed to doctors, and and maybe also because this drug came out of uh, seizure of German property that like they didn't maybe... It was probably just like, here's a drug. It's kind of useful. It's there if you need it. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, it's so so interesting how it's changed. I mean, I remember a couple years ago, uh, Sue Fentanyl got FDA approval, and there was like all this moral panic about it in the media. Uh, and it was like, oh my God, how can, how can the FDA approve a fentanyl analog during an opioid crisis? And it's like, this has already been approved. What they really, uh, rubber stamped was like a, a sublingual form of it or something. And it's like, this stuff is stuck in the hospitals. It's not making the way to the streets. It's such a weird atmosphere that exists these days about drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. We could get into this later, but the biggest the biggest stigma against methadone, I think, comes from people who use drugs themselves. Um, oftentimes, in my experience, um, and, and that's a, it seems counterintuitive. Uh, I've pleaded with people to go to a methadone clinic. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one thing I wanted to pull out of your thesis, Zoe, is the experience of a Jewish immigrant who, in uh, I believe the seventies was enrolled at the Bronx state hospital methadone program. And this is what he said methadone did for him. And this was, uh, I presume a, uh, a heroin user at, at some point or some opioid yeah. user. And, uh, he said methadone made me come to life. And then you kind of add that it gave him a a renewed ability to quote, get up, go to work, do whatever I have to do. So how is it that methadone can do that for somebody like maybe at the pharmacological level, but also in maybe the, the social realm too? Yeah. So definitely the pharmacological level, it has to do with methadone super long half-life so the amount of time it it remains in your system so if someone is you know using heroin or fentanyl um how a lot of people have described it to me is you know you jump back and forth between feeling sort of normal and feeling a little more euphoric when using opioids but over time you develop tolerance and physical dependence and begin to maybe use just to prevent withdrawals And so the longer half-life of methadone sort of evens out this rapid on, rapid off um, of shorter acting opioids like fentanyl, which in turn, I think, you know, describes a lot of what Jerry, right, our our, um, patient is sort of describing. Like you can sort of 
live your life more. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that means going to work, doing whatever, taking care of your kids, et cetera. It just sort of in the medical community, you know, we use the the word like stabilizes patients, which we could problematize that, but that's sort <laughs> of taking out um, this sort of wrap it on, wrap it off. And I think that's a really good way of, of thinking about it. Like it, it puts your, your timing within the, the social norm structure of, of like everyone else's circadian rhythm and you're sleeping at the same time and getting up at the same time. And it's like, you're not check. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's really important about long acting drugs that, that differentiate them from very short acting drugs. I really think that like time has so much to do with this issue here. Like the fact that you can dose once and it maybe lasts 24 to 36 hours or something. And what like such a, like a prolonged time horizon (laughs) versus something like uh, heroin, which is maybe like four to six hours, like, like just this living in time, uh, seems to be like kind of the crux of 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 this solution to the rapid highs and lows of uh, of other opioids. Yeah. So one of the things I hear about methadone and buprenorphine all the time is this is trading one addiction for another. Can can we talk about how this is like a totally inaccurate framing? Yeah, definitely. Um, drug substitution theory, which is how I've seen it referred to in some of the literature, right, that you're replacing one drug for another, um, has been a huge way, a, a huge uh, phrase that people bring up who are against methadone um, for decades and decades and even still today. And I think it's also a lot of my patients who I see in clinic too have this internalized stigma of like, I don't want to, I don't want to need anything. Um and it's it's totally wrong. I mean, <laughs> I don't I, I guess your question specifically, hmm, you mean from a pharmacal like could you clarify exactly what you mean? Well, addiction is just so much more complex than this like simplistic argument that if you take a drug to sort of manage addiction that you're just putting yourself in a different, in the same situation, like out of the frying pan into the fire kind of thing. But that's not really what's happening on a, even on a pharmacological level, let alone the sociological aspects of addiction, right? Yes. Yes. This is a medication that, you know, classic, some of the first methadone researchers in the sixties, uh, this is a very like tired comparison now, I think, but Methadone is just like insulin, right? Um, it's like and this biological theory of addiction, which again, we could problematize, but I think did a very, very good thing early on in terms of making people feel, having society buy in a little bit more to, this is a, this is a medication that people take to treat their addiction. The way I always broach this, at least in like my own writing and rhetoric, is that uh, someone is, is moving from addiction over into physiological dependence, right? Yeah. Where it's like once on methadone and quote unquote stabilized, suddenly all these uh, criteria for substance use disorder kind of fall away. Yep. Right. And so it's like you're not trading on addiction. 
in a literal sense, sure, you're substituting a drug or replacing a a bit of a harsher drug for a bit of a mellower drug. And and I think in Australia and, and Europe, the phrase opioid substitution therapy doesn't have the same baggage as yeah. it does here, like in the literature, OST or ORT, opioid replacement therapy. That's just kind of like the the clinical language that they use. But here in the US, our culture does not like the idea of replacing and substituting and dependence. Like these are kind of like uh, scare words. I think the um, the, the, the longevity issue um, factors directly into compulsivity, that like, the shorter acting a drug, the more compulsivity there's going to be around it um, in seeking and using and, and chasing a certain high. And once you are stabilized on something like methadone or suboxone, that 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 compulsivity disappears. And um, while you may, there are people that that find it elsewhere in other drugs and 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 still use other drugs for because of whatever purpose they they use them for. Um, with with opioids, at least, um, any compulsion you have around around uh, getting your your fix, you know, is 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 gone with methadone. And I think that's under uh, underrated as as a factor in, in in substitution therapy yeah and i think you know when methadone um methadone quote unquote methadone maintenance treatment which is what it was called you know under in, in the 60s and we no longer call things mmt programs or whatever that that idea too right of you're maintaining your addiction so mm-hmm. in all of this terminology right like opioid substitution, opioid replacement therapy, et cetera, methadone maintenance therapy, you're, you're maybe doing better, but you're still maintaining your addiction, which we, mm-hmm. you know, the addiction medicine community, other communities have tried to undo all of that language and just call methadone and buprenorphine medications for opioid <laughs> use disorder, right? Because that's M-O-U-D. <laughs> M-O-U-D. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's just wild how, how, uh, it seems like the language here is, is just such a huge determinant of of so many so many aspects to this, and so we 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 kind of you know uh, chronologically we we went from the 1930s in Germany to the 40s in the U.S. and we talked about Jerry in, in 1973 at the Bronx State Hospital. Like when 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 did the kind of tight regulatory regime uh of methadone kind of get created like how did that how did this whole system kind of come about i know that's a huge uh open question but let's try to like move forward in, in, in time a little bit yeah so um i think to answer that question i think a key historical figure we have to start with is former president richard nixon um, and Nixon gets labeled somewhat rightfully so as this, you know, OG drug warrior. In some ways this is true, but I think as we'll talk about today, this is a pretty reductive take on Nixon. He's a bit more of a nuanced figure when, when you consider him in the history of drug policy. Um, and you know, he put the first ever federal funding for drug treatment on the map. 
um, in the form of this pretty like relatively quote unquote radical leap of, of endorsing and uh, endorsing nationwide expansion of methadone maintenance. And, and I'm using methadone maintenance because that is how he referred to it in this historical context. But I think just quickly, I know we we want to move forward in time, but I want to add one thing that I think. Yeah, please. Um, so after methadone is on the market in the late 40s, we, a lot of, you know, addiction treatment in that time period in the 40s, 50s is not in the outpatient setting. It's in what Kim Su, um, who's an anthropologist, physician, harm reductionist, um, calls carceral therapeutic institutions. So mm-hmm. there are these big hospitals run by the U.S. Public Health Services. There are two main ones in Lexington and Kentucky and Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and they're using methadone a lot there. But the way that they're using it is to help people become abstinent. So to taper off of opioids and support their withdrawal symptoms. So they're not using methadone in the way that we think about methadone clinics and daily dosing today. They're just, it's a means to an end and that end is abstinence, right? So this idea of methadone maintenance therapy, the idea that you're taking daily doses of methadone in order to you know, quote unquote, stabilize your addiction um, was a new concept in the the early to mid 60s. And there were these landmark studies. The results were published in the Journal of the American Medical Association or JAMA run by three um, doctors and researchers, Vincent Dole, Mary Nicewander and Mary Jean Creek. And they were working at the Rockefeller University in New York City. And they asked, you know, whether daily doses of methadone could help treat heroin addiction, you know, reduce cravings, prevent returns to use. Um, They were, again, proponents of this biological metabolic model of addiction versus the individual choice moral failing paradigm. Um, And those results were really when methadone made waves in the scientific community, medical communities, and then also in society more generally. And that's, you know, after that sort of happened, Nixon starts to pay attention. And I think it's important to revisit Nixon's, you know, oft quoted 1971 public enemy number one war on drug speech that everyone, you know, I think many listeners are aware of, or maybe not, but, um, and sort of parse some of the language that he uses in this speech, So he calls drug abuse America's public enemy number one, but he, this is sort of a turn in the history of drug policy. He enlists physicians to assist him in, quote, waging a new all-out offensive, unquote, against America's, quote, drug problem, right? So one of the strategies he deployed, so to speak, using this militaristic sort of language that he uses was treatment in the form of methadone. So in one sentence, in the same breath, he declares a war on drugs and claims he's going to put a ton of money into treatment and research. And I think there's an important point here, too. We can't forget about the historical context of Nixon and the Vietnam War and soldiers coming home, lots of them struggling with addiction. They were viewed as more sympathetic figures. So the idea that we are going to invest in treatment and research, I think, had a lot to do with Vietnam and 
um, people coming back and struggling with addiction. So I'll take yeah. a pause there. <laughs> yeah, I- yeah, that was an incredibly clearly and well elucidated uh, kind of atmosphere and uh, context for Nixon. Yeah, and and the Vietnam situation. I mean, I've always heard that being upheld as sort of an example of uh, the Rat Park situation. Real briefly, Rat Park was this experiment in the 60s or 70s um, where they figured out that if you take rats out of these tiny cages um, where they don't have any socialization and it just kind of sucks and they put them in these big cages with other rats, they can run around and play. uh, They're less likely to be attracted to the morphine or the cocaine in the water bottle. Um, And this idea is that if people aren't in a really crappy situation, um, then they're less likely to use substances that will kind of like, uh, I guess, make it feel better. Um, but there's not that those are, that's in rats. So I see I've heard many times that like Vietnam is sort of that example. A lot of uh, American soldiers in Vietnam were using heroin when they were overseas. But when they came back, like they just kind of stopped like they didn't need that anymore um so it's interesting that that's sort of like the back the backdrop for uh putting this methadone stuff in place yeah absolutely and i you know when i was doing my primary source and archival research i would just go through all these issues of life magazine and looking Mm -hmm. for mentions of methadone and addiction treatment and the way there were so many humanistic portrayals of soldiers coming home after Vietnam in methadone programs, like with their wives and their babies and mostly white. And it was just like this sort of very, very humanizing portrayal that I've I've never, I'm like, that is so unlike other (laughs) portrayals we've seen, right. Of um, the war on drugs and, and, um, incarcerating people for drug it it just was quite remarkable to to see that portrayal so zoe when when can we date the first um publicly funded methadone uh, clinic as an outpatient facility for just um everyday drug uh, people who are addicted to opioids uh, to use when does that start i would have to the exact date of the first one i don't know off the top of my head but late 60s. So one of the clinics I studied, you know, 1968, 1969, are when some of the first ones, neighborhood-based ones open. Um, And that is before the, which we'll get into later, um, before the most stringent regulations come into place. Right. And and do we have a, do we have any uh, data or insight into their success um, into what kind of how they, how they, how they ran themselves with, um, because now of course um, OTPs are structured very rigidly. Was it just um, kind of any doctor could hang out a a, a, a shingle and say, you know, I'm I'm now a methadone uh, provider. Yeah. So um, one clinic that I studied in New Orleans was the first uh, methadone clinic open in the Deep South and really, really interesting guy who's obvious who's since passed away, obviously, um, 
but he was a surgeon. Okay. So a lot of these doctors who decided to open methadone clinics were, cause there was no addiction medicine specialty then, right. There, there was not, that didn't exist. So he was the surgeon. He had served time in the army. He was also a, a scientist with a PhD and started to see people in his general practice who were struggling with addiction and was super up on the scientific literature, read about methadone in that JAMA study from those three researchers in New York and thought, I can help people with this medication. And so he just started dispensing it like out of a primary care office. Hmm. Uh, And that was in 1968. And I, you know, followed his trajectory, the trajectory of the clinic, their newspaper articles, you know, meeting minutes from his medical society who completely ostracized him and cast him out when he started to prescribe methadone um, in parallel with the regulations getting more stringent. And ultimately what happened in 1971, 1972, his clinic was shut down because he was prescribing methadone in a way that didn't fit the regulations. And the way he wanted to prescribe methadone for his patients was just getting the medication and going home right? Not doing all this counseling, which some patients benefit with, but the larger studies show counseling plus methadone is of mixed benefit. And patients should be able to be like, I want counseling or I don't want counseling. It should not be a requirement, right? So um, he was very sort of very a renegade figure. Um, And there were probably several physicians like this across the country who were prescribing it in in this way that didn't conform to the regulations, pre-regulations during during the early phases of the regulations and saying, I'm just going to prescribe this like any other med. So it sounds like he, this this physician was the precursor to something called OBOT, <laughs> office-based <Yeah>. opioid <laughs> therapy, which is another like funny acronym and kind of another load of language here but yeah i i I had no idea that methadone before the the strict regulations came around yeah it was just like okay you're seeing your primary doctor you get your script you take your methadone and you live your life like that sounds like buprenorphine today totally and yeah you could just you know this doctor's name was dr james t nix so nix he would go across the street to his pharmacist and be like hey you know, I want to have some methadone in my clinic, you know, and it would just be a a script and then he would give methadone out. And I think what got people really, you know, people in his medical society, society at large, members of the medical community nervous about it was this aspect that it was this daily dosing thing, right? Which for people for chronic pain, they take methadone every day. So it really isn't any different. Um, But I think this idea that people who were struggling with addiction, were getting this medication every day. They were sort of lining up outside his clinic. They didn't look like the people who lived in the neighborhood. That's this sort of, then we have all these NIMBY community resistance aspects of this as well. But yeah, it it was sort of the original OBOT. So even back then, the idea of somebody getting a prescription for methadone and taking it home with them was was um, seen as inadvisable. I mean, people ha- you said people lined up every day at his clinic. Yeah, but- because um, the original studies were were very strict in terms of daily dosing. They were not pro take homes yet. I mean, at, only once a patient had been enrolled in methadone for X amount, you know, 
X amount of days, year, whatever. Um, so the daily dosing aspect of it, because that's how it was originally studied, uh, that's what many of these doctors did. Some of them were more lenient with take-homes than others. Um, but yeah, lining up, that sort of thing. So I, I want to get in a, a bit more into the the nuances of Nixon and try to get us to one physician who Nixon seemed to trust and listen to. And this is a Dr. Robert DuPont, who I know is a, a frenemy of, of Chris Morath's over there. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, we've, we've, maybe uh, a straight up enemy. I, I don't know. Yeah, we've we've uh, we've had a amicable discussions, but I've, he's my white whale definitely for a while. I think I want to make the case here that he was sort of a liberal Republican. Like he is not this mm-hmm. uh, this kind of zealot uh, hawk that I think history has made him out to be. And so just to run down some of the things Nixon's administration did in, in, in regulations broadly. So the Nixon administration supported the Clean Air Act, affirmative action. Uh, he created the Environmental Protection Agency, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA to like police working conditions and, and, and labor. And like he also supported social security benefits and uh, minimum taxes on, on wealthy people and like a, a guaranteed minimum income for the poor. Like these are kind of New Deal ish uh, 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 regulations and government interventions in in the economy that like Republicans today would be horrified by. (laughs) And so like, this sounds like a a liberal to me. Um, And so in in that way, it it kind of actually does track with the fact that Nixon would want doctors involved in, in treatment and fund treatment. And I think that's maybe where we get to this guy Robert DuPont and the Narcotic Treatment Administration. So if, if Zoe, if you want to take it away fr- from there and talk a little bit about this relationship and how this was part of the methadone system really uh, coming into being. Yeah. So this historian at the University of Rochester, Michal Raz, she's um, amazing and wrote this great paper in the Journal of Policy History. She went into lots of depth on Robert DuPont and the Narcotics Treatment Association. So this was one pilot methadone program in Washington, D.C. that got a lot of federal funding. And in its early days, this is in late 60s, And it initially involved lots of people with heroin addiction who were incarcerated in D.C. jails. Um, And those who were enrolled in this methadone program um, were mostly young Black men. I think it was like over 90%. Um, And this program was called the Narcotics Treatment Administration, or the NTA. And DuPont was sort of the head guy. Uh, He was a psychiatrist. Um, He caught Nixon's eye because of the papers that he published about this methadone program in D.C. The papers got published in 
super prestigious medical journals like Science and the New England Journal of Medicine. And the thing that why why I believe and why many historians believe Nixon was became interested in methadone or a big reason why was that a lot of these early studies demonstrated that methadone treatment reduced crime. Okay. So if you look at these early studies on methadone and the outcome measures that these researchers like DuPont used, there it looks more like, like a criminology paper, right? Or, or, or it could be something used for a conservative political speech versus like a medical journal paper. And that's when I first came across these studies, when I was doing my master's, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, this is very odd. So there's this 1973 article in science that DuPont was the lead author on. Um, he used all these graphs to track the annual number of opiate offense charges, the cost per milligram of street level heroin purchases, the number of crime index offenses that were, you know, meticulously parsed by type of offense from like robbery to larceny to, you know, from the late 60s to early 70s and was basically making the point that this is when the methadone program started in 1969, the NTA. And wow, look at how crime rates fell after that. So he attributed that really that reduction in crime to one methadone and two lots of, you know, quote, a major law enforcement commitment to reduce the supply of heroin in the city, unquote. Right. So this, you know, when I started to realize that Nixon was this more complex figure, I I felt definitely some cognitive dissonance. I was like, is Nixon really the hero in the story? Like, why was Nixon of all people for methadone? Like, wasn't I supposed to hate him? But then I found all these studies and the relationship to crime reduction. And I was like, oh, okay, this this is make, making more sense in terms of Nixon. So yeah, uh, like 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 yeah. it in addition to all that like nice little Green New Deal regulatory stuff he did, he was also like a rabid anti-communist and ran on a law and order agenda and did what he could to kind of outflank a lot of his opponents by going right. right. So it's like that like that that's the thing like he he sounds like a liberal and did a lot of liberal things and then he's got this kind of <laughs> other side to him. So it's like the the saying like he contains multitudes is, is certainly apt and Maybe more like he's sort of a just a a a savvy political creature. Like he can be somewhat of a chameleon and and shape shift and change his colors when he needs to. And that to me is more the sign of just like a a, a careerist kind of uh, savvy politician rather than somebody who is like a an ideologue and has these commitments that they hold to. Right. Well, there was one thing that Nixon was not. He was not a crook. <laughs> I, I, that was a terrible Nixon impression. I'm sorry. We're keeping that. Aaron, do not cut that. <laughs> and yeah, I, I just, you know, absent from all these studies, right, were any glimmer. There, there was no glimmer of like a patient-centered outcome, right? <laughs> like changes in patients' quality of life on methadone or 
their level of perceived stigma because of having to, you know, do daily dosing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they did measure, you know, reductions in heroin use and overdose deaths and stuff like that. But all of the majority of the outcome measures had to do with just with, with its effect on crime. Right. And so lots of study, it was not just DuPont, lots of people replicated this. And I think it's important important to understand this context when you think about the fact that methadone is the most regulated pharmaceutical medication in America. Right. So when I, when I first learned that I was like, I need to go deep on this because why, you know, and you peel back these layers and then you realize it was initially, you know, studied on folks who were incarcerated and all these crime reduction stuff and Nixon and, So methadone is this treatment that is geared towards quote unquote criminals, right? Who use drugs. And in this sense, Nixon could, you know, appease his voting base and stick to his tough on crime agenda and really support methadone expansion if it was going to reduce crime. But this relationship between the medication of methadone and ideas of criminality they're stuck together. You can't separate those two things out. And that's true today. And it has really plagued methadone's regulatory scheme, um, the way people think about methadone. If you ask a random person on the street, right, they're going to say like criminally coded racist associations, right, with methadone, I think. And for me, that was like my biggest aha moment in the research, going through all these studies and reading Michal Raz's work and other historian like Sam Roberts's work and really understanding this relationship between methadone and crime. And I think that thanks largely to DuPont, um, it became intricately entwined with the drug testing industry as well. Um, and um, I think I believe it was Operation Tripwire he proposed um, that would have kept any parolee, like for you know, released from prison, uh, in, you know, drug tested in, into perpetuity. It seems. Yeah, and he within this methadone program, the NTA, um, he was like obsessed with eutoxes, right? <laughs> like, like multi times a week urine tests, right? And he viewed that as an integral part of of methadone treatment, right? And I think that's also why we see in the regulations urine screening as being this hallmark, you know, test that is integral to to methadone treatment. And you need to have X amount of urine screens. It used to be a week. Now it's a year, et cetera, et cetera. But that, yeah, we have DuPont to thank for that. This is all so interesting. And this is why I'm glad that we had you on because uh, we've covered methadone many times on this show. We, We talked to a mother who lost custody of her kids for being on methadone, um, we've talked to people that have had to be forced to go to methadone clinics during COVID, and they've contracted COVID at the methadone clinic. So many other situations that are just kind of fucked up about this drug. Um, but I think having the context of this history uh, is really important. Like, I, I maybe it's a little weird, but I haven't really sat down and, before and really asked myself, like, why are we still stuck in this bullshit regulation? Um I, I never really asked, like, where did this come from? I, I guess I just figured it was like, this is the way things are and that people hate people who use drugs. So they're always going to treat them like shit, which they shouldn't. Um, but that's just sort of par for the course in a lot of uh, addiction medicine. Um, 
So it's not surprising, but when you really do take a step back and you look at this history, uh, it, it starts to make a lot more sense. And you're just like, oh, but but then, then the question remains, like, why the fuck is it still like this? And, and and how do we change it? Yeah, totally. Like, I think the history here is absolutely key to understanding why things are the way they are today. And, and I think like one other part of this history that that has been kind of staring us in the face and we've only kind of obliquely referenced is is the the racism and the racial aspect to this and i think there's a weird interview with dupont where he's asked about the kind of opposition that methadone what was getting at the time and for him the he says that like the the hardest thing that he dealt with was the like quote unquote racial aspect of it and the interviewer asks him quote what did methadone symbolize that was so terrible and dupont responds quote enslavement it was enslaving the black underclass it was robbing it was the narcotic the opiate of the masses being given out by the government for political purposes to make docile the revolutionaries who were otherwise going to free themselves and change the society. And then he goes on to say, like, that's just the way people thought. And it was that methadone was like a political weapon. And it was the agent of of Richard Nixon and his anti-black, anti-poor agenda. So, like, that's fucking gnarly. (laughs) What's the context of that? I mean, is he is he sort of speaking for what the uh, opponents at the time were thinking, or or has he changed his his views on on his role in 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 uh, establishing methadone as a as a treatment pr- uh, paradigm? I mean, is he just sort of parroting what he what he thinks the uh, anyone that was opposing that at the time would have, would have found to be the yeah. Um... I think he's pretty accurately depicting the community resistance that um, a lot of black power activists had against methadone, Um, which was, this is another part of my research that I was um, very, uh, I guess, somewhat surprised by when I thought of maybe naively. So, but when I thought about, you know, Oh, what are, what, what are, community resistance efforts against methadone clinics in the seventies going to look like prop, you know, the classic story that plays out today, right? Property values, white gentrifiers, that whole, you know, white NIMBYism. And what I found was a lot more, much more complex story. Um, And, and a big part of that was, was a lot of um, black power activists were, vehemently against methadone. This is this is a quote from a um, magazine newspaper called Black News from 1970. It's this anonymous author, you know, calling a methadone clinic in Brooklyn, quote, one more of white America's experiments in genocide against black people. And Black Black Panther Party members called methadone, quote, a subtle killer in the disguise of a solution. They, there was a name of a article published in a June 1972 issue of Black Panther called, you know, the article is called Heroin is King, but Methadone is the Emperor. So I think, you know, 
the fact that it was associated with Nixon and it was very much so associated with predominantly white physicians in lab coats, you know, out of institutions, you know, very few in the beginning were community-based methadone programs. So out of these sort of ivory tower hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, giving out this medication. And so, so I think that resistance is, is real, you know, groups like the young Lords is another example. They were very against methadone and, and thought that just detox to abstinence was the way to treat addiction, et cetera. And this isn't true for everyone in this historical moment, but I do think it was a big rallying point to rally around within those activist groups. And the Lords actually took over took over a part of Lincoln Hospital um, and to institute their their own vision of, of a program, I believe. Right. And so when when you think about the the regulations and um, how methadone got its start, it's it makes sense. It's not you know, and and a lot of these groups are arguing that it is not a it doesn't address the structural causes of addiction, right? Which which is true. Um, and they felt that methadone was a was a cop out, was a way that doctors could make money, was a way to um, silence radicals, right? And and it was a form of quote narcotic slavery, right? It was an it was which mm-hmm. does when you think about it, it makes sense, right? This is not these are programs that are handing out medications. There isn't a lot of community investment and support mm-hmm. and addressing structural inequality that was not methadone then right um, and it's not methadone yeah. today and to be fair we don't do that with with most uh, most policy yeah um um so it's 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 funny to hear that turned around on onto methadone i mean how often do we do we actually look at the structural um inequalities in in anything that that, that comes out of washington or, or local state politics um very very rarely i think yeah and and like just trying to like situate myself in the political scene at this time a lot of the black panthers and black power activists they were reading lenin they were reading marx like they had explicit ideological and revolutionary commitments at this time and i think like if i were alive then i'd be siding with them i'd probably be calling methadone a conspiracy to control uh crime and uh as and from there it's not a big leap to say that this is like a a weapon of social control and absolutely and and like a a disciplining uh force unleashed on on people yeah yeah i really think it's worth emphasizing um that this reaction i guess with historical context may seem a little paranoid but it was actually pretty rational um with like tuskegee experiments and uh, experimentation on black uh, women and forced sterilization. Uh, there's like an endless list of reasons why uh, people of color have come to mistrust the medical establishment. It makes sense. Um, and we're also seeing the same opposition to overdose prevention sites, um, which are largely where where they're opposed or from the communities in which they're sat and and, and um, in in. The Harlem, the the opposition was from local African Americans, largely. Yeah, and and you can't just dismiss those concerns. You really have to listen to it and understand where it's coming from. Um, and unfortunately, like 
there's a really long history of fucking over black people medically and and treating them as like guinea pigs essentially and it would be even weirder if it like the, they had embraced this program with open arms almost uh, Maya Solovitz does a really good job of kind of summarizing some of this history in her book uh, Undoing Drugs and uh makes it real really the connection that uh Michelle Alexander uh I'm totally blanking on the name of her book now. Uh, the New Jim Crow. Yeah, yeah. The New Jim Crow really, like, helped sort of, like, uh, untangle this war on drugs as being a war on people. And uh, things have changed a lot, I th- it was what I'm trying to emphasize here. But at the same time, it was a rational position back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I do want to take a second to um, think about, you know, if we we think about what a methadone clinic looks like today, which is dictated by regulations, right? And the spaces methadone is provided in, you can really see how the NTA, the Narcotic Treatment Administration, and many, many other early methadone clinics, um, how this, their emphasis on, on crime reduction came to inform the very spaces in which methadone is provided, right? Um, Very few medical providers enter a methadone clinic because the treatment is so siloed from the rest of medical care, but it's a carceral space, right? So it's methadone clinics are often located in disproportionately black and brown neighborhoods. They're often out of sight, Right. So in basements, on ground floors where, you know, the methadone clinic that I worked in as a medical student, I I worked in a primary care office three floors above this methadone clinic. And it was in this huge medical building. But the methadone clinic was on the ground floor because building management, you know, didn't want, quote unquote, those patients in elevators with people going to see their OB-GYN or ENT or whatever. Right. So a lot of Mm. Clinics are 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 segregated in this way and and chairs bolted to the floor and cameras and guards and lots of presenting of IDs, signs saying um no firearms or weapons allowed. Uh, you know, the whole dosing uh window is this plexiglass barrier where you slide your hand underneath it, and that was there long before COVID-19, right? So mm. very it's carceral and it's all about surveillance. And to, for me, having been into many methadone clinics and then reading those studies from the late 60s, early 70s, I was like, two plus two equals four, right? Yeah, like what, what you just described very much comports with the clinics that I've seen. And and the this was pre-COVID. It was at the harm reduction conference in New Orleans. And when these conferences go down, there is a uh, a shuttle that meets every morning that will take people at the conference to go to a clinic and guest dose. And I had the the privilege really to to kind of uh be on the ground and 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 be there. Uh, with these people at this conference who were trying to guest dose and I would wake up early with them 
Uh, we would sit in the lobby drinking coffee. We're tired as hell. We wait for the shuttle to come. And then from downtown New Orleans, like, like Bourbon Street or whatever, like the French Quarter, we would drive to a different neighborhood. And suddenly we would be in, I guess, what would be called like the projects. And now there's this like beige brick, uh, nondescript building with really no signage or anything on it. And that was the clinic. And it's exactly as you said, it's very sterile. The, 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 the lighting is like harsh and white and plexiglass everywhere. And, and then like the, the hoops that all these people at the conference had to jump through to get a dose from a clinic outside of the state that they're normally uh getting it from it, it was just like insane <laughs> to like they had to fax over forms yeah. some of them had to fax over the same form like like multiple times and it was like they were all there was kind of like in the shuttle there was like almost like an air of uh anxiety because they weren't even sure if this was gonna fucking work totally and and it was just like just mind-blowing to see that like just to travel this is what they had to go through and they oh they also had to spend 15 to 20 dollars on a special lockbox because this was like a friday so they were getting their like friday dose along with their saturday sunday dose because it was closed on on weekends and they would not be able to get their weekend take-homes unless they had this little box yep it's uh there are so many I could just, <laughs> that's even another hour long podcast, yeah. of all of the <laughs> logistical hurdles that are so yeah. fucking oppressive. And I just, yeah. 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 It, it makes me kind of angry, but also it makes me wonder like, how is any of this supposed to help someone? Like we don't yeah. design anything else in our medical system to be like this, Um and, and are we supposed to be helping people or not? Because this, I'm thankfully like never had to go through any of this, but it's dehumanizing and demoralizing. And I would hate myself. You know, I would feel ashamed because I would be in this situation that is designed to make you feel ashamed. Yeah. And that's a big part of why I got interested in this field and clinically and in this history, because Patients who were theoretically, quote unquote, doing well and quote unquote, stable and enrolled in methadone, whatever, they felt like shit when they were accessing treatment, even even with Suboxone, even with buprenorphine and having to go every two weeks and give a urine, right? And exactly like you said, Troy, it's like, who is this, who is this helping, Um, even if a patient might be doing well on paper, right, like how does they feel like shit when they have to do this? A lot, a lot of folks. So I think taking this back to the history and sort of, we talked about before methadone, you could get it at a pharmacy. It was sort sort of like, you know, how it's done in European countries and in Australia, et cetera today. But you have all these methadone and crime studies coming out late sixties, early seventies. Then in 1972, The Food and Drug Administration removes methadone from general distribution and establishes unprecedented controls over its use for the treatment of opioid addiction. And I want to be clear here, 
if, if a doctor is prescribing methadone for the treatment of chronic pain, these rules do not apply. And that is still true today. So if I had a patient come into my clinic and um, maybe they have cancer pain, right? And I prescribe methadone, they can pick it up at a pharmacy. It's dosed differently than than, um, methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder, Um, but they can pick it up at a pharmacy, right? So even just that is, it's the same medication, just a different indication, which always blows my mind. Um, Yeah, Kim Sue has has told me that she's, constantly baffled and like so angry at the fact that yeah she can prescribe this for pain but if someone has an opioid addiction suddenly her hands are tied behind her back yep and these regulations made that so so basically in 1972 it these regulations established the methadone clinic system or the you know clinic system for short so methadone had to be dispensed at special clinics. It could no longer be available or prescribed through doctors, doctor's offices or pharmacies. And so it set up this sort of two-tiered system of methadone distribution. So methadone clinics are required to have on-site counseling, rehabilitation, other social services to, quote, help patients become well-functioning members of society. And these clinics also needed to have a separate facility from the spaces dedicated to counseling and social servicing, social services for dispensing methadone and conducting urine screening to closely monitor whether patients were using substances in addition to methadone. So in establishing these strict requirements for where and how methadone could be dispensed, you know, the physical spaces, et cetera, the federal regulations like really decreased access to the medication at a time when patients needed it the most, right? Um, but it also shifted emphasis from care and concern for patients to punishment and surveillance, right? Um, so it really put these regulations put massive restrictions on the availability of methadone, right? Because you had to be able to open up a clinic with these specific requirements and this type of fridge with this lock and this thing, you know, all of this shit. Um, And that, so that was 1972. The regulations have changed very, very, very little since then. It's basically the same for the past 50 years. Yeah. So I want to ask, like, is anything giving you optimism? Are are you seeing any like shifts happening in that could make this uh less fucked up and draconian and orwellian is the word i'm trying to find yeah i i am somewhat optimistic um i think things will change in the next several years um i have to believe they will i think one thing that inspires me just generally is the amount of young people going into the field of of addiction, practicing as providers, um, who similarly share these feelings of rage that, you know, when I talk to older doctors or providers, they're sort of like, yeah, this is the way things are. And then I talk to younger people and they're like, well, we have to burn this down or we have to change it. Right. (laughs) And that's, that's sort of the, the framework. And I have to believe that those, people are coming out and, and I don't know about masses, but there's, there are more people interested. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think, you know, 
you guys have talked about this on another episode briefly is COVID-19 and, and this natural experiment with, with methadone take-homes, I think has, which I'll very briefly explain, basically when COVID hit, um, a lot of clinics did not adopt this, but um, many did across the country give people two weeks worth, one month's worth of take-home methadone. And a lot of people, including, um, I was a part of a study with Dr. Ayanna Jordan, who's a leader in this field, um, looking at, you know, did overdose deaths increase at a result? Did diversion, meeting, selling, you know, methadone to someone who hasn't prescribed it, which has been, you know, an exaggerated fear since the seventies, did that increase other safety measures, whatever, lots of research groups across the country studied this and found that there were no increases in overdose deaths as a result of take-homes no increases in diversion as a result of take-homes and improved quality of life, which we have ignored as a really, really mm. fucking important variable in studying methadone. Right. Um, I mean, I, I honestly think that that's really the whole key of it, right? Like improved quality of life is like the whole point of doing any kind of uh, health intervention. And, um, and, and so the sky did not fall when, when COVID-19 radically disrupted the everydayness that methadone had been stuck in for decades. And and I think that kind of inserts uh, this kind of flexibility into something that had been really rigid and kind of fossilized, like just burned into rock for, for so long. And the fact that it, it changed during COVID uh, I think you're, you're right, Zoe, is like a, a huge uh, opening that that previously hadn't been there. So in a way, it's like something terrible happening, like a global pandemic kind of functions as this exogenous shock to the system. And I think now with things kind of loosened, uh, you're right that that there's a lot of potential for for change. Absolutely. And it's it's very sad when you think that it took a global pandemic <laughs> to create regulatory yeah. change, the most significant regulatory change we've seen with methadone in 50 years. That's, you know, it's sad to think about. Um, but it did create more political will, I think, and more, um, you know, now organizers who have been doing this for decades and decades sort of have a little more data to present to policymakers, et cetera, to sort of say, you know, combined with the overdose death rates in this country, right, Um, to sort of say that we need to change this. And so I think I'm, I'm Aaron Ferguson and I are a part of this coalition called the Free Methadone Coalition. Um, You can follow it. There's a Twitter handle. We'll put I'll, I'll send to you guys. It's at free methadone on Twitter. And we have this, it's, it's a coalition made up of people who are on methadone, drug user union organizers, medical providers, researchers, et cetera, um, who are trying to deregulate methadone to make it so that, um, to adopt similar system to European countries and, Etc. Other places around the world where methadone can be prescribed by a primary care doc, and it can be dispensed in a pharmacy, right? Um, and we have this sign-on letter circulating now. I'll also share that 
um, where it calls on the DEA, it calls on SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, to implement immediate regulatory reforms to create more accessible, equitable, patient-centered methadone treatment. Um, so methadone treatment would be available in all treatment settings and communities. Um, the structure of methadone treatment should be determined by the patient in consultation with their clinician and by science, like we do with other chronic diseases, right? Um, and so it's a really great letter that anyone who's interested can read more thoroughly, can sign. Um, and there was this bill uh, moving through Congress that has since been folded into another bill. I mean, all this shit just takes <laughs> forever. Um, it was called the Opioid Treatment Access Act, and it was calling for um, addiction specialists working outside the methadone clinic system to prescribe methadone for the treatment of opioid addiction to allow for pharmacy-based dispensing. Um, our coalition had issues with that because it limits um, prescribing to addiction certified providers, which if you, you know, think about yeah. rural America, they're like, no addiction providers out there. Right. So we want this to be not siloed in addiction. We want it to be available, um, from any, any doctor really. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you don't want to like create the X waiver system for methadone yeah, basically. Right? Exactly. And so we had issues with that. We were talking to the, um, Congress person who was, um, you know, behind that bill and it got stalled. And, you know, I think a big thing here, Troy and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago is the financial incentive piece of this as well. There are lots of folks who have a stake in the methadone clinic system financially. You know, it, you can bill for daily visits, right? That's a lot more lucrative than giving people take homes, right? Uh, Bain Capital has a lot yeah. of methadone clinics, which Get is into it, <laughs> which is disgusting. Um, a lot of methadone clinics are for profit across the country. I forget. I think it's like 40 percent. Um, I could be wrong. I think, yeah. I think the statistic private equity flooded into the methadone game like yeah. over the last decade or so. And so cynically, as the overdose death rate was kind of jumping, I can imagine yeah. some like analyst at Bain Capital writing like a research memo making the like raw capitalist case to like pour funds into methadone treatment and opioid addiction uh treatment and it's just like whoa it, it kind of like is is like a mask off type of moment where they're like when the private equity guys see an opportunity here you know there's a problem <laughs> totally totally um but you know i I do think I've, I've loved being a part of this coalition and feel like it's growing and growing with each week. And I feel like, you know, it's tough to get, it's tough to get rules to change. But I think something that I also learned from this um, attorney, Corey Davis, and a couple of other people whose names I'm forgetting, but um, I recently learned that it's not really a heavy lift for the DEA or SAMHSA to change this. It's really just like changing a regulation. Like they just have to change the writing. It's not like a law, right? It's, it's a regulation. Um, so it's really easier than, than it seemed to be initially. Um, hmm. 
but it's just about the political will and it's it's tough it's an uphill battle yeah i really liked what you were talking about uh with young people uh i know a lot of people listening to this show are nurses or work in the medical industry in some sense and we get messages every now and then from people they're like hey i'm going to med school i'm trying to get into addiction and like really appreciate your show because it's teaching us a lot about this but like that really is who the 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 coalition that's kind of really bring all this to an end this overregulation and fucked up uh, attitude towards people is is the next generation and uh that does give me hope i actually uh really have a lot of admiration for gen z um gen z has has definitely been given a worse situation than even the millennials in a lot of ways like they just don't see a lot of hope for the future uh, with climate change and all kinds of other things getting worse. Um, but I also see so much standing up and, and recognition of the the situation and, and, and fighting back. And, and that all gives me hope that it will, something will change and there will be a better future. I totally agree. And that's, very much the reason why I wanted to talk to Zoe so badly as this kind of this new uh, cohort entering addiction medicine with recognizing how, how, how fucked up this regulatory system is, how poorly America has treated addiction for so long. And, and Zoe, it's just amazing to, to see uh, young physicians like you, you know, entering the field with a, sense of history with a sense of political commitment with the the right mind about this and and i just think that that has i in you know in my lifetime like i think it absolutely will lead to the right kinds of changes so it's just yeah amazing to hear uh your perspective on this because you're absolutely part of that future and so thank you for for sharing your uh your view on this with us yeah thank you thank you guys uh zoe where can people find you online um i am on twitter uh at zoe underscore m underscore adams lots of stuff on there and yeah that's pretty much all where you can find me online (laughs) okay well we'll have links to that and we'll post links to some of your writing and and especially the information about the coalition that you're part of and and the specifically that letter kind of arguing the the vision for for change um i think listeners should definitely check that out and if you are listening and you're in any way adjacent to any of this it's like you can totally do something you can totally uh organize and and be be part of the the winds of change here. Absolutely. And if anyone is listening, interested in medicine and in addiction and just reach out, I'm happy to talk about it. We we need you. Okay, great. Thank you so much for coming on Narcotica. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Narcomedia, co-hosted and co-produced by Zachary Siegel, Troy Farah, Christopher Marath and Aaron Ferguson. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, 
you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. We are excited to announce that a portion of the proceeds from the show will now go toward the Urban Survivors Union, which is the National Drug Users Union, a group of directly impacted advocates for drug user health in America. This is the way social change happens from the ground up, and we are so excited to support this group that is doing such important work to fight stigma against people who use drugs. If you're a patron, you also get free stickers which are personally mailed to you. You can also request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off of merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we are so grateful to the folks that make this show possible. A little goes a long way, so thanks for making Narcotica happen. We're ad-free and we want to keep it that way. If Patreon just isn't for you, that's fine. You can help us out by spreading the word. Tell all your friends about the podcast advocating for social justice and abolishing the drug war. You can also rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Glassboy, and Jenny Shea is the voice of Narcotica. Additional music is by myself, alias Nomad1, drug-using producer. Well, I guess that's all. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Until next time.